WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week, our guest is Fred Van Lenty, uh, whom you may know from Archer and Armstrong, Comic Book History of Comics, Action Presidents, and any of his other various and sundry comics. Uh, he's joined me and Matt to talk about his amazing 2018 novel, The Con Artist, about a comic book artist who attempts to solve a murder at San Diego Comic Con, and his uh, oeuvre at Valiant Comics. Uh, as it was recently announced, he'll be launching Psylords in June. Uh, one word of warning, a bit of an apology. The audio of the first few minutes of the interview is less than great. Uh, we had some technical difficulties to start, uh, but if you bear with it past the first four minutes or so, I promise good times are ahead. Uh, and boy, are good times ahead at WMQComics.com. Uh, have I mentioned we'll be making not one but two live appearances this spring? I have, but I'm mentioning it again because it's important. Uh, we're going to be at Camden Comic-Con on April 27th, hosting a live Q&A panel with the one, the only, Jerry Conway, co-creator of The Punisher and Jason Todd, killer of Gwen Stacy. Uh, it's a free show. It's at Rutgers Camden, and you should toast McGroats go to it. Uh, we'll also be at Free Comic Book Day at Dewey's Comic City in Madison, New Jersey on May 4th, which I am told is a great time and draws a huge crowd. So if you live up that way, please come by. Please say hi. Uh, meanwhile, we got all kinds of goodies on the site this week. Uh, I had some feelings about the Blob's portrayal in the Age of X-Men extremists. Uh, Will Nevin wrote uh, Wednesday Warriors column that is ostensibly about Batman, but is actually the greatest multi-platform experience WMQ Comics has ever produced. Uh, Matt Laswitz is doing a bonus reading column on the best Asgardians not named Thor or Loki because War of the Realms starts this week. Uh, Joshua Bermont's going to be reviewing Ahoy's Bronze Age Bookie Number 1, and we're going to have a brand new installment of Pod People up later this week that you X-Men fans out there are going to love. And all that, all that, is at WMQComics.com. Now here are me and Matt and Fred. So, uh, Fred, I guess we'll start with our usual uh, icebreaker question. Uh, what are some of the comics that you remember reading when you first got into the medium, either you know as a fan or professionally? Um, you know, my child of the seventies, so I'm dating myself a little, but, uh, my, <laughs> the pocket books, uh, reprint of like the original Lee and Kirby, Fantastic Four and Hulk and the Ditko and, and Lee, like Dr. Strange and Spider-Man really on a Marvel kind of on the ground floor. And so I got all those, the Stanley Fed books, like origin of Marvel comics and Marvel comic, just the Captain America specific one and a Hulk specific one. So I remember, so reading comics about a decade after they but uh you know i definitely got into them in in a really big way also dc used to do like they used to do these blue ribbon digests in the late 70s early 80s mm -hmm. uh, like the betty and veronica like the archie digests but they'd have like stories just like on a theme like remember my one of my favorites was strange sports stories that was a weird 70s i love i love dc dc's weirdo 70s titles like that i'm like that's right first didn't count the doom patrol and all that kind of stuff so so i really love those reprint comics i got like marvel used to do like uh i think marvel marvel's greatest comics was marvel's greatest stories was the avengers reprint so i loved the the roy thomas joe john buscema run on avengers where like the vision was first introduced and that kind of stuff so I've always had this weird kind of Doppler effect, like historically with the comics, because I'm only two decades behind where the 
now. <laughs> but, you know, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, so uh, Matt and I actually both just finished reading uh, The Con Artist, your uh, 2018 novel about a comic book artist who takes it upon himself to solve the murder of his editor at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, first of all, right. great. Really enjoyed it. Thank uh, you. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, how long ago did you first conceive whatever kernel ended up becoming this book? Not that long ago. Uh, I had worked 10 dead comedians and they, 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 they enjoyed that quite a bit, and they asked me what else I had, and I pitched them a bunch of stuff. And Connors, I think, was was what resonated the most with the like um, culture concepts. Uh, and I just like the idea of setting. Like, I love Raymond Chandler's books. Like, so I really wanted to do a um, a traditional noir, but in sort of the milieu, you know. And but there's so much like you know noir stuff. That sort of graphs nicely on things in the Congress. Like, there's a Southern California setting. There's a first-person narration. There's a lot of like government and, and personal corruption. There's a femme fatale, and then all. Um, the uh, the the book kind of walks the line between you know real life entities, you know Marvel, uh, Comic Con, Rob Liefeld. Uh, you know, there's a shout out to uh, the comic shop that Matt used to work at for like 15 years, Dewey's Comic City. Uh, nice. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and the fictional, uh, you know, uh, in some cases heavily heavily analogous entities like Atlas Comics, uh, Ira Pearl, Sebastian Mob, the Kirby Awards. Um, did you kind of spend in, in in crafting this book or in the editing process? Did you did you have to spend any time with like a lawyer pondering, you know, what you could use and not use from the real world? No, man, that's what the publishers for. Like that's their problem. <laughs> as I'm concerned, you know, their lawyers want to get back to me with stuff. You know, I, as you guys know, I did a book called The Comic Book History of Comics, mm -hmm. uh, comics, and we used a lot of trademarked and, and copyrighted stuff there. But that, that was all, to me, considered to be fair use. And uh, <laughs> I made sure to keep all the, the really evil stuff in the hands of the fictional characters, so there was no uh, blowback from anybody still alive. In preparing for this interview, uh, I had to look up Disco Mummy to see whether that was a real thing or not, which, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, sure enough. Yeah. Character in the old plastic man cartoon from, from the seventies. Uh, was that, was that something you actually remembered from growing up or did you have to kind of get your gloves and shovel out and go, go digging for it? You know, like, come on internet, give me the most obscure thing you got. <laughs> oh my God. Neither. <laughs> There's a bit in the novel where Mike, the hero yeah. has the, who's a comic book artist at, in artist alley at San Diego has this kind of strange person coming up to come up to him with uh, pre-printed cells or stills, I guess, turned off the internet from the episode of the 1979 filmation Plastic Man cartoon featuring Disco Mummy, who, for those of you who have neither read the book nor seen the cartoon, uh, Disco Mummy is a kind of sexy mummy. She's dressed from head to toe in bandages, she, yet she has black, long black hair on the outside of her bandages. And she has this kind of like half purple, like John Lennon jacket on. And she cackles constantly and drives around in a mummy mobile and steals the, all the world's treasures. And in the highlight of the Plastic Man episode, she fools the Mexican army by, because she's Aztec mummy, obviously, uh, by hiding out a giant gold sarcophagus. 
and she actually has kidnapped the scientist who uh, accidentally brought her back from the dead in a means that is never explained. And why do you need an explanation, I ask you? <laughs> uh, and she and he has a line where he literally says, I knew it was a bad idea to revive an ancient Aztec mummy. No duh, professor. And she go-go dances in her pyramid headquarters to a jukebox of what I'm assuming the 45-year-old men in, in who made this cartoon assumed was disco music, but most, most clearly it's not. But whatever. Uh, the BGs were not writing this episode. Uh, anyway, uh, there's a bit in the con artist, my novel, where somebody comes up and a very strange man comes up and uh, uh, tries to get him to do a con commission of Disco Mummy. Uh, and uh, to answer your question, this literally happened to me. Oh, wow. Uh, except for the drawing part, because I don't draw. I was at a, and it wasn't at a Comic-Con, it was at a comic store signing. So that, that was ripped from real life. I had never heard of Disco Mummy beforehand. And uh, this guy sort of subjected me to 20, for 20 minutes conversation until he kind of finally wandered off without buying anything, of course, because those guys, the guys who talk to you for 20 minutes about some <laughs> random thing you've ever heard of before and never buy anything, they only want a receptacle for their obsessions. <laughs> uh, and this clerk comes up to me and goes, goes I was talking to you about Disco Mummy, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Why, yes, he was." And then I had to Google and then watch the entire episode. And I, I'm forever thankful for that stranger for introducing me to the glory that is Disco Mummy, and so I put him in the comic. At some point, Dan, you're gonna have. To, I actually own that Plastic Man series on DVD, so someday I will loan it to you so you can watch the Disco Mummy episode. It's genius. The whole series is pretty terrific. Oh, it's great. It's completely crazy. Yeah, it's it's it is it is it is peak Plastic Man. <laughs> um, you know, uh, part part of the fun of, of the book is is all the uh, immersive experiences at the con based on fictional TV shows or or, or movies like uh, Dante's Fire and Absolute Zero and Cell Block Z. Uh, right. You know, looking back on how you kind of fleshed those out for for the purposes of the book and and you know maybe even more so behind the scenes. Do do any of those sort of fictions within the fiction? Do you, you know are they things you can keep in a tickler file for future pitches? Well. Dante's Fire, my wife, Crystal Skillman, wrote a terrific play called Geek that's done all over the world, and that is set at an anime convention where the the anime that the convention's about is Dante's Fire. So that is an in-joke between my wife and me. So Dante's Fire already exists in the play Geek by Crystal Skillman. Nice shared universe. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Absolute Zero was a comic that my buddy Steve Ellis and I started to do and then never completed uh steve and i started working out we did a couple series together like the silencers which you can now get from dark horse um book. oh thank you yeah that we had a, we we love doing that book that's kind of what put me on the map uh or at least it's what got me the notice of marvel um and what was the third one you mentioned oh um cell block z the, the zombie yeah. prison one man i did if i do more zombies i'm gonna shoot myself in the head I mean, like, I, I like zombies a lot. I, and I shouldn't say that because I'm contemplating doing a zombie project right now. But uh, I actually kind of like the property it's based on. So that's a slightly different situation. But, like, 
doing Marvel Zombies for so many years, and then I did the Z Nation comic, and I did a walk, and I did a parody zombie comic for Dynamite called The Mocking Dead with Max Dunbar, which is super fun. Uh, I just want to put a gun in my mouth. Like I just like the zombie apocalypse finally happens. Like I'm not even going to bother like fighting. I'm just going to jump off a bridge. It's <laughs> not not because I'm scared of zombies. Just I'm sick of them. Like, I just don't want to look at them anymore. <laughs> it's too much. Uh, the the apocalypse is here and it's overdone. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that was based on uh, Walking Dead. Actually, had in Petco Park. So another set piece in the book mm-hmm. uh, is Mike is sort of pursued by these bikers during the course of investigation through this kind of like a giant escape room complex uh, for based on a fictional TV show called cell block Z. That's about a zombie apocalypse. It's set in a prison during a zombie apocalypse and walking dead another obviously zombie apocalypse. That's partly that was partly at one point set in a prison uh, did actually did this sort of obstacle course through Petco Park, which is where the San Diego Padres play. Uh, and that stadium for the Padres is right across the street from uh, uh, the convention center where the convention is held. And if you love baseball, definitely go if you can. It's a beautiful ballpark. It's a shame the Padres always stink, but what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm a Mets fan, so I can relate. Uh, in fact, the year I went to research the Connors, the Mets played the San Diego Padres uh, the day after Comic-Con. Like, Padres never play Comic-Con for obvious reasons because of parking and in the back it would be a total nightmare. So anyway, they always do some crazy con events at San Diego. It, excuse me, at, um, yeah, at the Padres ballpark. And one of the years they had this obstacle course. So I put that in the book. I just have to ask, since you said you went for a trip to research, have you used the, uh, the USS Midway as the where Atlas Comics is holding its private yeah, party. Yeah, con party, yeah. Have you ever been to a big party on the Midway? Oh, no. Marvel's way too cheap to actually throw a party on the Midway. That would never happen. <laughs> in fact, the not a good point that the Chinese investors are actually throwing on the Midway. Ah, I bet you somebody's throwing a party at the Midway, but for one thing, the Midway is kind of far from where the convention is held. Like, it's a good 20-minute walk. Yeah, because I've been to conferences for my day job in San Diego and the software company that hold that holds the conferences throws the end of conference party at the midway every time sure. we're in San Diego. So it was kind of like, Oh, I've been to one of those big parties, not a comic industry one, but it's a really cool place to have one of those big parties. I bet. I bet. Well, I'm a huge history and I love the midway. It's a great, it another, uh, and also if you like, if you like ships and who doesn't really, uh, <laughs> The Maritime Museum, which I can't remember if it's on the convention center side or the other side of the Midway, is pretty terrific too. They have one. They have the they have the sub one of the subs that was uh, involved in the block in trying to run the blockade during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's pretty neat. That's cool. Is it the one Magneto grabbed? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a time traveler. I don't know. There's uh there's there's some larger messages at play in the book about how the comics industry treats creators and how uh, fandom is not as inclusive as it would like to believe. Uh, you know, curious if if those messages were kind of always, you know, if they were planned to be a part of the book from jump or as you were writing, you know, did you realize that you kind of had a few things that you wanted to say or or, or get off your chest in in the, in the process of writing it? Well, I mean. You- 
if you're going to do a noir, there has to be some sort of corruption at the heart of it. You know what I mean? Uh, there's no, it can't just all be, you know, m- you know, first person monologues and, you know, and ladies smoking cigarettes and Venetian blinds and stuff. You know, there has to be a larger moral message to it. And, and so, you know, just having been in the industry for a long time and seeing a lot of skeevy stuff go on, you know, most of the stuff that happens in the book is all, I mean, some of it's heightened for dramatic purposes, but most of it is stuff that I, that I personally am aware of that happened to me or that happened to one of my friends or, mm-hmm. you know, I know through the grapevine. So, uh, the, uh, uh, to me, there was no point in doing the book if I didn't bring a reality to it. Um, and if it's a murder mystery and if there's, you know, hinky stuff going on, it should be fairly, you know, real life hinky stuff. And again, much of it is sensationalized, but a lot of it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I uh, you know, with, without spoiling it for the reader, uh, the main character, Mike, uh, Mike Mason, gives a particularly rousing speech at the award show. Uh, at the convention uh, that sums up certainly a, a lot of my feelings about the way the industry treats creators. <laughs> right. Yeah. Part of the, uh, a big part of the book is, uh, you know, the, uh, the illustrations by, by Tom Fowler, where you can kind of see the characters and you can see what Mike is seeing. You can pick up little clues uh, as part of the plot. Um, you know, how did you end up choosing Tom as your illustrator? Uh, you guys go back a ways, correct? Yeah, well, I knew Tom is a very detailed artist, and if he agrees to do something, he's going to give it his all. So he sort of had the perfect combination for of qualities for this project. And, uh, you know, immediately he was quizzing me about what pencils Mike was using and what kind of paper he was using. And immediately he was making the book better because I was like, I don't know. So I had, to, <laughs> I had to quit. Well, I don't know, Tom, what pencils would you use? You know, that, you know so he... Uh, I was able to sort of go back and, and fix a lot of stuff in the manuscript based on what Tom was saying with what he was doing the drawing. And, and I knew that was exactly, that's exactly what I needed as a writer. And I, and, and I knew that Tom would immediately break that. And, and he's a terrific artist and can draw anything, which, you know, cause I'm asking him to draw robots and zombies and bikers and, you know, and giant Mesoamerican slabs of, of, uh, of, uh, archeological finds and all that sort of thing. So, He's perfect. <laughs> um, what what was your what was your first con? Uh, you know, either as an attendee or a uh, as a professional. Well, when I was a kid, back in my day, <laughs> I, I would make my dad drive me to. I was trying to get, like I said before, I was a huge Avengers fan. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to get an entire run of like the first two hundred or so issues of Avengers. I got I got pretty far. Nice. I, mean, I got like, at least a hundred of them. I feel like by the time I lost interest when I went to college, uh, but. Uh, uh, I would make my dad go to these, you know, in the 80s, you know, these cons, quote unquote cons were like, you know, just dealers just smoking their brains out and like, you know, uh, these crappy ballrooms in hotels near the airport. And, you know, I remember half the comics I got just literally all smelled like ashtrays because those guys would just sit there and smoke and bitch to each other and my father was like oh god the kid wants me to drag me to one of these things i can't believe it uh so that was sort of fun the first con i remember going as a uh, as a as a as a creator was literally the summer after i graduated we went to this 
my roommates and I, one of them, Ryan Dunleavy, who I do, who I later went on to do Action Philosophers and Complex History Comics with and Action Presidents, and I still work with him today. Another buddy of, I, of, of, of mine, we went, we decided to go to this. I have no idea why we decided to go to this. We went to a con that was in the VFW Hall in Niagara Falls, New York, <laughs> which unlike Niagara Falls, Ontario, across the border, which is kind of this glitzy kind of, you know, by Canadian standards, glitzy, uh, you know, tourist trap. Uh, Niagara Falls, New York is, to put it politely, a dump. And uh, and so we were sitting there with our mini comics. This was back in the 90s, kids, when you actually photocopied your mini comics and then cut them with a, with a, with a paper uh, cutter and then stapled together by hands, with our own two hands, I tell you, gentlemen. Uh, and so we're sitting there behind a table, and this kind of scraggly dude comes up and... Uh, and looks at my mini comics. And he says, what are these about? I'm like, well, this is a science fiction comic. And I said, this is a parody comic. And he just looks at me and my friend. And he goes, I like gore. And just drops and walks away. Gore <laughs> became like the, our big catchphrase for years after that. As our, as our sign of disdain. <laughs> I like gore. So, so yeah, we didn't sell anything. and not I don't know what we were thinking. I think I think we were charging like 50 cents for a mini-comic, so it's not like... We did go... We did stay across the river at Niagara Falls, Ontario. This is, you know, pre-9-11. We would just, you know... Walk across. Stagger across the Canadian border, you know, with, your, with a gun sticking out of your pocket, and they'd be like, come on in. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and we got hammered and played putt-putt golf and peed off the falls and did obnoxious... The obnoxious things you do when you're 24 and hammered at a comic con that you earned a dollar fifty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I, uh, I learned the Niagara Falls lesson uh, in 2006 when my wife and I got engaged. We went there as sort of a mini celebratory vacation. Stayed one night on the American side. It, the days in Niagara Falls, New York, was easily the worst hotel I'd ever, we'd ever stayed at. And so the next day we just checked out early and hoofed it across the falls. Once we saw all the bright lights on the Canadian side. And sure. Yeah. <laughs> much, much nicer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, you know, now, nowadays, do you, you know, what, I, I, what kind of shows do you prefer as somebody who's on the con circuit? Do you like the madness of like a San Diego or a New York or something a little bit more uh, artist alley friendly, like an Emerald City or a Baltimore or something smaller? Well, I mean, those are all great shows that you mentioned. I mean, San Diego is a little grueling for me. Like, uh, I would never, I, Ryan and I once tabled at San Diego, but that's a brutal marathon. That's like five days. Like, I would never do that again. And I enjoy it, but it's, kind of exhausting and kind of expensive. I mean, many people say the same about New York, but New York is my local show. I live in New York City, so I can sleep in my own bed. So it's not, it's, and uh, New Yorkers basically like show up and just empty their pockets in front of you. Like they just like, take all of my money. So it's always my lucrative, most lucrative show of the year. Honestly, I like the best uh, international shows. Huh. Um, primarily because it's free travel to places I probably wouldn't ordinarily go myself. Uh, the, the folks there are super grateful when any Americans take the trip. Mm -hmm. So they kind of treat you like royalty and you get translators and you get sort of led around and taken out to fancy restaurants and so on. So it's, that's pretty cool. I did Madrid Heroes Con last year. That was freaking awesome. And I did a London show. I've done London a couple times. Um, I did Guatemala. I might be going to Buenos Aires this year. Mm. 
Um, I've been to uh, I've been to Paris. The Paris Comic Con is awesome. Um, I feel like I'm missing a couple, but anyway, uh, yeah, the international, you know. Oh, uh, La Mole in Mexico City is amazing. I highly recommend any creator do that one. So yeah, it's the international shows that are definitely my favorite. Um, yeah. What is? What, how do they kind of? How are they different? Are, you know, are they all different in their own ways? Or? Guys, they speak this crazy language I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, could you speak more slowly? <laughs> I would like to sell you a comic. Um, the Steve Martin thing, like it just talks slower and louder. Maybe they'll get, maybe they'll get it. Um, you know, I, gosh, you know, I, I don't really think there is a huge difference. I mean, um, I mean, I sort of want to say there's more female fans, but I think that we really have a lot more gender parity in our American shows now. So I don't even know if that's, that's necessarily the case that may have been true at one time, but I definitely think that, that, um, you know, you see, you have a real diversity just in general at comic cons. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's a huge difference. I mean, don't forget a lot of these international shows like the Paris comic con, like the famous French French show, which has been going on for decades is Angoulême, right. but that's way out of sight of Paris it's on the coast in this kind of medieval resort town, Paris comic con. A lot of these places are very much consciously, trying to emulate American shows that their organizers have been um, so they do try to make it kind of as quote unquote American as possible I mean they feed you like Paris, you know at the Paris Comic Con we had a whole spread a whole catered spread because they're French and they want to make sure everyone's fed um, you know while at an American show you're lucky if you get like a bottle of water like chucked at you across a room by a volunteer yeah um, uh, it's just the uh I mean, you know, I can only really speak from the from a from a pro standpoint. Is that is that they, you really feel the gratitude of that you sh took the time to schlep out to, you know, like I went to Melbourne, Australia, and that was a twenty three hour flight. You know, um, it was awesome, but I was like, you know, I was pretty much a zombie for the I, my sleep schedule never synchronized. So I would go to bed at like five o'clock in the afternoon. Or, you know, whenever I got back from the con and then wake up at like three in the morning and do work until I had to go to the show. Uh, so uh, moving on to your work over at uh, Valiant, um, you've been writing for Valiant Entertainment since uh, nearly the beginning of the sort of resurrection renaissance of the Valiant characters. Yep. Um, what drew you to work with Valiant? Well... I had done a series with Greg Pak at Marvel called The Incredible Hercules, and I learned this from Tom Brevoort sometime later, that the only reason they greenlit The Incredible Hercules, which uh, was a series about Hercules, as someone said to me at a con, do you mean Hercules the guy? Like, yeah, <laughs> Hercules the guy. Not some generic superhero with like an H on his chest, you know. Hercules has an H on his belt buckle. Uh, and Amadeus Cho, the seventh smartest person in the Marvel Universe, uh, I don't know, maybe he's gained or lost ranking since then, I would know. Uh, and so they go up in adventures. Apparently, when they were talking about doing the series, which was a spinoff of World War Hulk, <laughs> we were said, yeah, we should do it because you'd just be like Archer Armstrong, which is this buddy, which was this strong man, younger guy, buddy comic from the 90s that Barry Winston Smith created. 
but then Valiant came up to me at New York Comic Con and said, hey, do you want to write Archer Armstrong? And I said, sure. And then I had to go home and Google Archer Armstrong because I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> so it was very sort of roundabout way. So, so that's basically what happened. I mean, I got brought on to do Archer Armstrong, presumably because I'm working in Incredible Hercules. And, uh, uh, and they have not yet been able to get rid of me. <laughs> yeah, just, I'm still here. I just won't leave. Because <laughs> you've written Archer and Armstrong, Strong, and you've also written uh, Ivar Timewalker, who's Armstrong's elder brother, yes. and have featured the third of the brothers Anapata, uh, Gilad, the Eternal Warrior, in uh, both of those series. Which one of them is your favorite to write? I love the brothers. They're my favorite characters in the Valiant universe. Yeah, mine too. I mean, I, it's hard to say. I mean, they all have their various advantages. I mean, uh, I think I like writing all three of them at the same time the best when they're in the same room because they get on each other's nerves so much. And it's kind of hilarious to me. So I, I like that. I like being able to sort of like the, this idea that, that they're these three incredibly powerful beings but you can immediately relate to them because they're just so dicks to each other all the time and they're constantly trying to like, they're so competitive with each other and they're constantly trying to one up each other, but they three of them have totally incompatible worldviews. Like I always like say Ivar is the smart one. Armstrong's the soulful one and, and Gilad's the angry one. Um, and so that kind of constantly like, you know, you know, bats up against each other you know Ivar is the smartest guy in the world but he can't there's some things he knows that are impossible and he keeps trying to do them anyway Armstrong is uh is, he wants to be a poet and he wants to like you know flirt with girls and get hammered all the time but he he is super strong so he keeps getting drawn into these conflicts he doesn't be involved in and Galad you know is fighting for the earth and keeps getting brought back to life of the earth, but he knows that one day he's going to lose, you know? So, so I just like it because they all have these various, they, they, their, their strengths and weaknesses are sort of, you know, uh, two sides of the same coin. As the eldest of three brothers, I had never connected the fact that, Oh, right. That might be why I connect with these characters so much before you just right? said that. You're the time <laughs> yeah. walker of your family. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. The smartest guy in the room. I will definitely take that. There you go. Um, now, Archer and Armstrong was an absolute delight. And one of the things that I loved about it was all the crazy conspiracies and the different, uh, I was about to say sects, but the different parts of the the cabal that was it was called the sect were you a conspiracy guy before that or was that something you kind of had to dig into and find all these crazy conspiracies to sort of build these cults around you know i did like it like i i i read a lot about it i loved like you know like particularly when i was a kid like i want to say hbo like really early hbo like early 80s used to do these like kind of like the Leonard Nimoy in search of shows. Like they would do like Bigfoot and, you know, what happened to Amelia Earhart and all that kind of stuff. Like they would always have these like unexplained mysteries and I was really into them. And in the modern era, I'm less enamored with them because so many people seem to believe them in, and, 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 you know, so much of it is a substitute for like rational thinking. I, I no longer want to really write about conspiracies because I just feel like I'm giving them free airtime. Um, 
but yeah, no, I, I, uh, uh, that was really like, so Arch Armstrong's like five, six arcs, I think. And it's sort of roughly like, so there's like, there's religious conspiracies, there's, there's historical conspiracies, there's entertainment industry conspiracies, there's military. So we, we try to like each arc kind of loosely has its own, um, pet conspiracy that sort of gets explored in that chapter, you know? Um, and so we start with like the world religions and we end with sort of the modern religion and that there's Scientology and, and, and Jim Morrison and Marilyn Monroe and Kurt Cobain and all that stuff. Like all those get kind of, it's a grand unified theory of um, conspiracies. Uh, Tupac and Biggie. And, you know, we do all them kind of in that one, you know, weird continuum. We, you know, when you get from the Vatican to Tupac, you know, you know, you've gone like a, this is the sort of connections crazy conspiracy theorists make, right? Oh yeah. Uh, that and is that is you were kind of pointing out just the craziness is in a way very funny. And Ivar, the the idea that killing Hitler doesn't work partially because every time traveler is trying to kill Hitler at once, yeah. and it never works because they're constantly getting in each other's way, right. is hilarious and Herc was so, so funny with him and Amadeus um, and you kind of talked about it before when you meant you know I like gore guy with you were writing parodies of humor how important to you is humor in your comics not very <laughs> no I'm fucking with you uh, yeah yeah no it's very it's it's very you know and just sort of how I see the world you know it's it's uh it, it, it it's hard to take the world seriously. It's really messed up, and people do crazy things, and people do such cruel things for such stupid reasons, and it's hard not to kind of roll your eyes at it. Um, uh, and so I just sort of have and always sort of been that way, been kind of like, you know, I don't know if it's just a snobbery or just a way to make myself not go crazy. But it's just sort of I've always seen any certainty to me deserves to be mocked. You know, like Ivar is the smartest guy in the world, perhaps the smartest guy in history, but he and he's master time travel and all these things, but he keeps trying to do the same thing over and over again. For those of you who read the book, it's not killing Hitler, it's another thing. Uh, much more poignant thing. Uh, and he keeps failing. And I, I don't know, I, I, that's sort of what I'm interested in is sort of like, I, I think it's very easy to write about heroes when they succeed. I think it's much more interesting to write about them when they fail. Because then you you really know what people are made of, you know, because I think that all of us have had successes and failures in life. I don't know about you, but when I have successes, they tend to be kind of fleeting, at least in my memory. Like it's the failures that kind of stick with you. I think our brains are just wired as, as threat assessment devices. So we're just sort of hardwired to sort of lean towards the negative. So it's always interesting to me and helpful to me to talk about people who are resilient in the face of failure. Hmm. Uh, after you did your series with the brothers, you moved on to do uh, Generation Zero, which was yeah. part of Valiant's more superhero-y corner with these sure. uh, sorry these young psyots which are the valiant answer to 
Marvel's mutants or DC's metahumans and these teen revolutionaries. And you'd done um, written Amadeus Cho for quite a while, uh, who was a young teen hero in the Marvel universe. What was sure. it like returning to that teen hero zeitgeist, even though those the kids in Generation Zero are very different from Amadeus? Sure. Yeah, and before even Incredible Hercules, I did a book that I enjoyed quite a lot called Wolverine First Class that was Wolverine kind of mentoring Kitty Pride, who was supposed to be like 14 or 15 or something like that in the book. So it was that was a lot of fun. Like I always feel really old when these like like 25 year old women come up to me at cons. I'm like, oh, this is my favorite book when I was a kid. And I was like, oh, right, I'll say. <laughs> so sad. Thank you for reading, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Valiant's are a task with trying, out, trying to do a, a teen book. They wanted a teen book. Um, and so that was my attempt to sort of give them what they wanted. Um, I really like those characters the sort of world that josh my buddy josh dice started creating harbinger i really liked so and i thought it was a cool title like they uh at the time there i think they actually wanted to use the title secret weapons which they used later gave to a completely different book um uh and i was like it seems to me you have the perfect title in generation like why don't we just do generation zero you know uh and so i was just trying to i I, I thought it was funny because Stranger Things came out right afterwards, and I, I think like I was sipping from the same cup as those guys because like there's a lot of shows. There's a mystery in the town. There's a lot of horror elements in it, and uh, and that was a lot of fun to do. That book. And uh, most recently, your stuff you did uh, a title War Mother, which was a post-apocalyptic sci-fi book. And when you were doing Time Walker, you introduced Neela Sethi, the uh, new Time Walker, and her uh, dinosaur, her anthropomorphic dinosaur partner, Ank, who are two of my now favorite Valiant characters. I just Excellent. get a kick out of them. Um, in a much smaller universe than, you know, your sort of giant sprawling Marvel or DC universes – does it feel more weighty or more fun to create these new characters since every character kind of counts more because there's so many fewer of them? Yeah, I would say so. I definitely, um, you know, Valiant has this sort of strong core group of fans and we've managed to build that out a little bit with the new universe. Um, and it's always good to sort of, cause you don't want, you know, with the franchise comics, you're always doing this sort of tight wall, tight rope walk between the familiarity, which is what brings people back over and over again, and showing them something new and surprise them so they won't get bored. So that that's always been a fun challenge in dealing with the Valiant characters. Um, and Valiant has been very good about letting, you know, our imaginations roam over there. So uh, we've been pretty successful in doing that. And you have a recently announced next project, which is Psylords, one of the old school Valiant titles from back in the day that looks like a reimagining of that or a kind of a different take with a different with the uh, same old title. Um, but can you tell us about it? Uh, Psylords definitely sort of spins out to a certain degree in 
from Exo Manowar in that it is also set in outer space. Um, but it sort of takes a different tact. It's, uh, it's more of a, almost a lost in space type situation where you have four individuals uh, who wake up uh, in an alien prison and basically don't have no idea how they got there uh, or what they're supposed to be doing. And then they've got to uh, bust their way out of it and then quickly find themselves trapped on this alien world where they're, they're tasked with this finding the Psylords who are these mysterious ancient beings that may be the source of their powers or may not be the source of their powers. They may be good, they may be evil. You know, they may be, uh, in fact, the closest to gods we've seen yet in the Valiant Universe, you know, uh, uh, and we haven't really gotten into that god concept in, uh, you know, in Valiant, the way, you say, you have Wonder Woman and the and the and the... Amazons and the Greek gods in DC, or you have Thor and the Asgardians and Hercules and that whole bunch in Marvel. Uh, but the Psylords are sort of uniquely valiant gods, uh, and once our heroes come into encounter with them, it's going to be pretty cool. What's the um, what's sort of the general tone you're going for with uh, with this one? This one is pretty much a science fiction thriller adventure. I mean, there's humor in it to a certain degree because I'm writing it, but. Uh, not so much in maybe some of my other titles for Valiant. Um, the, I mean, the tone is really set by Renato Guedes' art, which is just, like, face-meltingly beautiful. Like, this is really... I think this book is really going to launch him, and we're going to lose him really soon to somebody who's going to pay him more money, and I'm really upset about it <laughs> because he's just crushing <laughs> it. Uh, his work is just spectacular. He's creating these new alien species and alien ships. Um, there's sort of a Game of Thrones aspect to it. Because uh, our heroes find themselves on this uh, environment called the Gyre. The less I, I say about it, the better. Sure. It's more, more fun for you guys. But uh, there are all these different factions fighting for control over it. And uh, uh, and they're all after our gang. Um, and they're going to have to figure out... Basically, they have to figure out how to work together and figure out how to uh, sort of unite all the various factions of the Gyre behind them. Uh, to achieve their goals. Uh, Renato, Renato's been working for uh, for Valiant for a while now, right? I feel like I've seen him on a bunch of different titles. I believe so. He's definitely been done EXO, and I think he's just, he hopped off Shadow Man to do our book, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he was on Shadow Man for a bit there, but yeah. That's great. Um, so... Um, I now one more topic before we uh, let you was before we let you go. Um, I first read your stuff when you did uh, Action Philosophers with Ryan and Levy, right? And you followed that up with uh, Comic Book History of Comics, or back when I read it when it was black and white comic book comics. That's right. Um, and oh, now, yeah. <laughs> and now uh, the current thing you guys are doing is Action Presidents, which is done in a, a different format, more of a, a traditional kind of bookstore uh, format. And right. we've talked to various other guests in the not-too-distant past about, you know, all-age graphic novels and that, that bookstore format and that bookstore market. Um, was that part of what inspired that change? Where, where did you, why did you guys decide to kind of shift from the traditional floppies to something different? Well, um we wanted to try out the book market and develop the action philosophy, or excuse me, action president's concept. And our agent brought it out to a couple different publishers. 
And uh, HarperCollins is the one who picked us up, and they pretty much said this was the format they preferred. And then we saw how much money they were paying us, and we're like, great! (laughs) (laughs) We love it. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, so, yeah, money. Money. The answer is money. <laughs> You're not made of stone. Exactly. exactly. I'm stand on my artistic principles. Do I have those? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> they are for sale, whatever they are. I have them. Uh, what, uh, what are you reading these days? Uh, I... You know, challengingly, I I, I read um, a lot for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, what I was reading when you guys called was The Immortal Game, which is a history of chess by David Schenk, which is very good. Uh, before that, I was reading uh, Designers and Dragons, uh, which is a 1600 four-volume history of the role-playing game industry. So that may be a hint as to what my next nonfiction comic is going to be. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, the chess one as well. The chess one and uh, and the the designers and dragons. Uh, the, those are the same project. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. Then. Uh, what else? Okay, just finish something. Pause it. Uh, it's a great book. There's a great. Um, this is also related. Unfortunately, I don't really read for pleasure anymore. I just read <laughs> what I read for. Uh, this is very good. It, for those of you who are coming to New York City in the next couple of months or are already here, uh, the Morgan Library has a terrific exhibit on J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, drawings and his original manuscripts from his various Lord of the Rings books, uh, and that's super fun. And I've got a great collection. Uh, from that, but that's the next thing I'm going to read. Also for the same project. Oh man! All right. There's a lot going on there. But yeah, it's called uh, Tolkien, Maker of Middle Earth. It's really good. It's at the Morgan Library until I think April or May or something. So look for that fantasy project announcement from Fred. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometime in the next couple of months. Uh, what's your what? What is your uh, con schedule like this uh, this coming spring? Light. Uh, I kind of broke myself researching the con artist, so I've been trying to take it easy. I'm definitely going to be doing – Ryan and I will both be – and Crystal of the aforementioned Geek the Play uh, – will be at Denver Comic Con uh, at the end of May, beginning of June. Um, uh, if you are in Argentina, uh, the weekend before that, I'll be in Buenos Aires. Uh, and that's kind of it. I, pr- I probably will do New York Comic Con, if only because I've done literally every New York Comic Con uh, since New York Comic Con started. Uh, but that's kind of it. I'm kind of being a homebody this year. Yeah. Self-care is important. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so as we're, as we're wrapping up, uh, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? Sure, yeah. On Twitter uh, and my website and on Facebook, I'm just Fred Van Lente, just my name. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm pretty... Not not hard to track down. All right. Well, Fred, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Very cool. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site, 
and $2 gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA!